Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And in our continuing coverage of what's going on in Standing Rock, where hundreds of Native tribes have gathered together uh, and with other allies to protest um, the Dakota Access p- Pipeline, uh, that uh, could uh, go right by, uh, right by tribal land. Uh, and we have covered this from some intensity. We'll continue to do so. It's an amazing gathering of, uh, historic gathering of people here that's taking place. And we're going to get a feel for that. Also about the decision just happened. Uh, we're here with Rosa Aguilar, who is host of your call uh, radio on KALW in San Francisco, uh, who writes for many journals, uh, founder of uh, Use Your Voice Workshops, and just, just returned uh, from covering stuff in uh, in San Rock. Good to have you with us, Rose. Great to have you back in the air with us. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. And we're here with Mark Trahant, who is an independent journalist, faculty member at the University of North Dakota as a Charles R. Johnson Endowed Professor of Journalism. You can follow his work on TrahantReports.com. And Mark, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Good morning. Thank you. Great to be here, Mark. And y'all can join us at 410-319-8888. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. Uh, you can also send us an email to talk at steinershow.org. But do join us at 410-319-8888. So, Rose, I, I, I've been following uh, on Facebook everything you've been uh, doing since uh, you all went out to Standing Rock. Um, but I, I just, just because you have such a way of doing this, uh, one of the things I was wanted to get to first where we hit to all the kind of uh, the battles going on was the feeling that's there. I mean, this is um, really unprecedented. I don't think, as people have written, it's been uh, a long time, over a hundred years, since this many nations have gathered together in one place at one time uh, to stand together for Native rights and to defend Standing Rock. That's right. So when I was there, I got there Friday morning. I left last night. About two thousand people are currently at the camp. At its height, there were about 5,000. People from over 300 tribal nations are there. Just over the past four days, I met people just driving in from New Mexico. I met a woman who was going back to Alaska. I met a man who was adopted and didn't grow up on a reservation, really doesn't know much about his tribe. And his wife said, you know what? Now is the time to learn about where you come from. And he's in his 50s. And he started crying when I was interviewing him, basically saying, you know, this is my way of trying to figure out who I am and where I come from, and it's never too late. So, so many stories, Mark. I also met the great, great, great granddaughter of Sitting Bull. I mean, there's just, and I'm trying to find her name for you, a really amazing group of people out there. And like you said, they feel like there's so much solidarity they say that we're still here. Uh, her name is Jermaine Tremel, great, great, great granddaughter of Sitting Bull. And she said the relatives of Sitting Bull have mostly been quiet up until now. They really don't talk about Sitting Bull. They don't talk about the history, what the textbooks get wrong about Sitting Bull. And what's happening at Standing Rock has really given them the inspiration to basically come out and say, you know what, we're still here. And so that's what I heard over and over. I also heard about similar situations happening back at home with fracking, with drilling, with all of these fights for people who are, you know, fighting for clean air, clean water, and the right to live on the land. 
And, and Mark, try ahead. Let me bring you in here and your thoughts. I mean, you live there. Um, I know you've been back and forth a great deal to, the, to, to what's been happening there. And, and, and as a former president of the Native American Journalists Association and a, and a member of the Shoshone Bannock Nation in Idaho, I'm just curious. So, so your, your take on what Rose said and what your feelings are about what you're seeing happening at this moment. Well, I think it is that uh, coalition of bringing everyone together at this really unique moment in history. And I think part of it is a rise of uh, the idea that uh, indigenous knowledge could help lead the country through some really thorny issues, particularly climate change. And as folks come together and say, this is the conversation we need to happen, and it starts right here at Standing Rock. But uh, yesterday, a whole new front opened up that I think is going to be the next uh, part of this story. And that is what's happening with the Corps of Engineers on um, uh, basically promoting coal shipments to the Northwest. And all of the tribes that have interest in salmon are going to have to rally the same way that's uh, going on with Standing Rock. What's going? What, what's happening? The Army Corps of Engineers released a report that basically uh, said that there's no impact on shipping coal by train. And a new terminal, they looked at the terminal and only the terminal, so they didn't look at coal dust, they didn't look at climate change, and uh, basically it opened up a process to ship more coal uh, to the Northwest for shipment to China. And um, the UN says 90% of the coal should is unburnable and should be left in the ground, and this is going to, I think, start that whole uh, conversation. Hmm. You know, and I think some context is really needed, Mark, because... When I'm here in San Francisco reading about what's happening, watching videos, seeing video of attack dogs and security guards with pepper spray, you know, people being arrested, it's really hard to get a sense of what the place looks like and feels like. And that's why I decided to go. So Standing Rock, the, the reservation, is about, if you're in Bismarck, that is the capital of North Dakota. It's about a 45-minute drive from Bismarck. And you drive through this beautiful land. I mean, you see right now there's fall foliage. It's just, it's just gorgeous. So the Missouri River is what the people are fighting to protect. And the Missouri River provides 18 million people with drinking water. Now picture a river and then picture a pipeline going under it. 20 miles to the east of the river, that pipeline has already been built. The pipeline that has not been built is the 20 miles to the west. And that is what people at Standing Rock and the camp are fighting for. Now, this is a really important piece of information. The original pipeline was supposed to cross the Missouri River just north of Bismarck. Again, that's the capital of North Dakota. The tribe says that after concerns for the city's water supply were put out there, of course, people did not want this to go north of their town for fear that there would be a rupture. The, the, the pipeline route was shifted downstream to the tribe's doorstep. So I'm still trying to figure out what went on behind the scenes. How was this pipe rerouted? This, I think, deserves far more media attention mm -hmm. because if it's, if it's not okay for the people of Bismarck, why is it okay for the tribe? I mean, that's a question that really needs to be asked. And so yesterday, actually on Sunday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia rejected the tribe's request for an injunction to halt construction on that 20-mile section of the pipe. That's really what they're fighting for. 60% of the pipe has already been constructed in South Dakota and Iowa. But right now, what people at the camp are fighting for is to stop the construction of that 20-mile section of pipe. 
Now, yesterday was Indigenous Peoples Day, and there was a standoff between the water protectors and law enforcement in North Dakota. Uh, the sheriff's office has, has asked people from all over the state, the sheriffs from all over the state, to come in. And basically, it's, it's like the, the water protectors versus sheriffs and the pipeline construction company. And according to reports, the sheriff's office has asked law enforcement from other states to come in. And 27 people were arrested yesterday on Indigenous Peoples Day. And so what I've heard from people at the camp is the coming weeks are going to be crucial because this, this decision basically rejects the tribe's request for an injunction to halt construction. And again, it's that 20 miles of pipeline that's crucial at this time. And I guess I just didn't get that when I was reading it. It's hard to put this all in context when you're reading about this from your computer, but being there gives you a completely different perspective. So I'm curious, Mark, if you pick up on that and, and, what, and what you see as being the next steps, because clearly the people are saying that they're not going to they're not going to stop just because the decision was made. They're going to continue both fighting legally but on the ground. Right. And this legal is just uh, one step in a long process. And, and that was something that the chairman said of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, Dave Charbo, even before the decision. So they recognize that it's a long process. One of the and, and partly it's because the way the court looked at it, they just looked at some narrow issues. They didn't look at the broader issue. They really can only look at what's in front of them. And so the broader issues will be addressed by a combination of courts and uh, the administrative functions of government. I, one of the challenges that um, I think folks um, don't get is that um, a pipeline, every piece of data says that there will be ruptures. And uh, a question of, uh, over any body of water, particularly in North Dakota, is what do you do with a rupture when there's 30 inches of ice on top of it? Uh, how do you get to it? How do you treat it? Um, it really pr- is extraordinarily problematic no matter where it's at. So uh, let's talk about this on the complexity here. Mark Tran, you made, you made a comment earlier about about um, about the, the uh, Native, Native people who may be kind of at the head of this, playing a really important role in, in America in around climate issues, which I want to come to. But let me talk about in the context of going back to Rose for a moment, because Rose, one of the things I saw you say or you wrote, I forget which one it was on Facebook, was that you, um, when you were there, you met a couple from a reservation north of this reservation who were in, the woman was in tears because uh, her tribal government had gone along with the oil companies and were into the land and she was here to make a stand. So talk about it from that perspective. Then I want to go back to Mark to kind of flesh that out in terms of of what he was thinking about where this might take uh, the climate change movement. Yeah, I mean, there there are so many complexities and layers to this. So Walter and Lisa DeVille drove in for a chieftain in Bismarck. They're from Mandaree, North Dakota. They live on the Fort Bristle Reservation, which is about two and a half hours from Bismarck, population 5,500. And what's happening with that reservation is the tribe is basically working with the oil companies, and the tribe gets a check every month from the oil companies. And Lisa told me that her son is the only child to graduate from high school. So many of the kids are dropping out of high school because they're getting oil checks every month. And Walter, her husband, spoke, and he was crying as he was speaking, saying, you know, in so many ways, we were better off when we were poor because greed has no boundaries. I mean, it affects everybody. And and Lisa said that she's been completely ostracized by her tribe for speaking out, saying, look, 
down the line, look at your grandchildren and their grandchildren. Think about the decisions that you're making today and how that's going to affect the next generation. But she said, you know, it's so hard when your tribe is poor. They will work with the oil companies to get a check every month without thinking about the ramifications down the road. This woman has gotten two master's degrees in science to test her water and to test her dirt to find out how this oil is polluting her land. And she said they're already seeing it. The fish are dying. Sometimes they're seeing oil when they're walking down the street, down to school. She says it's, it's horrific what she's seeing on her reservation. But because there's so much poverty, tribes in many cases works with the oil company. And you hear this from a lot of people. So, so Mark, let's pick up on that. Cause I, think I, I want to just for a moment just kind of focus on this kind of internal contradictions and why they take place and where this might lead the, everything. I mean, in talking about Fort Berthold, which I've only visited once, but it was a while back. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's it's a it's a res with I think the the Mandan Hadasta uh, and the uh, Arakara people, the three affiliated tribes that once had this twelve million acres now down to some four hundred thousand acres because kept being stolen back, and you have right. so so talk a bit about what that political dynamic is and what that the dynamic might be inside of tribal governments and why this takes place. Well, and this is where um, it's producing, I think, a really inspirational change. Uh, even some of the tribes that have been heavily into energy production. And Mandan Hidatsa, Arikara certainly would be one of them, but also Crow, Navajo have come to the side of the Standing Rock Sioux and said, we're with you on this. And uh, MHA has actually sued an oil company over in another pipeline, which they're actually part owner of, uh, saying this one can't go through Lake Sakakawea. So it's created this new um, kind of introspection about where we go from here and whether or not the price is worth it. And that's that's really tough for a politician when they are paying per, um, a distribution to tribal members from those profits, saying, you know what, we may not be doing this in the future, and we may have to scale it and look at it a different way. And, and that's happening across Indian country. So, I'm, you know, the, and, and I think that you probably found this, Rose, as well, while you were there, that, that people are determined to stay through the winter. This is not going to end because the weather gets colder. As, as, Joshie, <laughs> as Joshie Ross said in the show a couple of weeks ago about that, um, after he just came back from Standing Rock to to his resident Washington State, he said, um, he said, well, if if they think that the cold's going to scare Indians away, they're crazy. So we're still, <laughs> <laughs> so so I mean, yeah. so um, but talk yeah, about it, it. Go ahead. It might, it might <clears throat> scare California Indians away because we're not used to that kind of cold. <laughs> I mean, when we were there, it hit forty, and I thought, oh my gosh, how are people going to get through this? <laughs> well, you're from California, though. <laughs> Mark, because so, so just to give you a sense of what it looks like, you, dr- you drive in, and if you saw that Democracy Now! clip with the dogs and the pepper spray, yes. so that's the, that's the front line, and that's about two miles from the main camp. And there are just maybe five tents there. These are people who are holding down the front line. And then you drive two miles, and I mean, it's just beautiful country. If you, if you get a chance, just go see it. And along the fence, there's all the tribal nation flags that have expressed solidarity with Standing Rock. And so as you drive to the main camp from the front line, you just see all of these flags. It's so beautiful. And then when you drive into the main camp, there are huge flagpoles with the flags of the various tribal nations. And then as you drive in, there's a big piece of wood with beautiful art on it. And it says, we are unarmed. If anyone is caught with drugs or alcohol, they will be kicked out. 
I mean, the tribe really wants people to know, and, and the camp and people who are there expressing solidarity, that this is a nonviolent camp. There's a lot of misinformation that has been spread in the media. People are being called terrorists. I, when I was there, there were helicopters constantly flying overhead, drones flying overhead. I didn't see the sheriffs, but, I mean, they're in military garb with these long-range shotguns. I mean, it's, it's very intimidating, and, and that's the point. But when you drive into the camp, you know, there's, there's porta-potties, there's a huge kitchen, there's a school that's set up, there's a, so many teepees, lots of camps and tents. But what they really need is people who've got winterization expertise to go to the camp and help them winterize because it's getting cold really fast. And they don't know if they're going to stay at that camp for the winter. They're still talking about what steps they're going to take for the winter. But the plan is to stay there. And yesterday I met people from New Mexico and they said, we didn't realize it was getting this cold already. But people are still going in. They're hearing about it. Word is spreading. A lot of the people that I met who arrived said they didn't hear about it from their local TV station. You know, they got it through social media or they got it through other friends, and that's why they're arriving. But, yeah, at this point, the plan is to stay for the winter. So, so Mark Trahan, I mean, when, when you look at the, the history of um, Native resistance in this country um, and the movements that have taken place from the post the wars of the 19th century, uh, through aim through this, I and mean, what, what, what do you what is it? What do you think this takes, both um, the Native movement and our country? Well, in uh, in those years, it was a different sense because um, the activists from AIM and in the fishing um, cases in the Northwest kind of pushed and pulled the tribal governments into it. The tribal governments initially were reluctant to get involved. This has been just the opposite. This is one where tribal governments from the beginning see the larger issue. But again, coming back to that point I made earlier, I really don't think this country gets through climate change without indigenous knowledge. Yeah, talk a bit about this that. Is the, this is the first time you have a people with a 10,000-year history who are able to say, you know, we've been through changes before, and we can help you through this. So we were talking about Mandan, Hidata, Arikara. Um, some of those villages, which by in the 1800s and 1700s were the fourth, fifth, sixth largest cities in North America, they had to go through a transition because of drought and move and physically change where they were. And so this long arc of history is something that I think is going to be really important. If we look at just the science, in order to stay below two degrees Celsius, the total we can release is 800 gigatons of uh, carbon uh, CO2 into the atmosphere. And if you include that pipeline, there's no way the math works because that pipeline is all about growing it from 570,000 barrels a day up to uh, a million barrels a day. And we just can't have those kind of increases. In fact, what the um, data suggests is there has to be a managed decline in fossil fuels. Uh, and Rose, I mean, so you're, you're, in your coverage of this, and you've been covering the climate movement as well a lot on your program at KALW, um, and I'm, I'm curious where you, where you think and see it going as well. Well, I just think that there's a massive uprising going on right now, major awareness raising. I mean, just in the last two years, there have been three very important books written about California Indians, about the missions, about massive genocide that took place in California. And so I think that people are really hungry for historical information. Mm -hmm. I think that 
the other thing I heard from a lot of people at Standing Rock is, you know, our history is important, and we're still here. And we want people to learn about our history. In fact, yesterday I met a woman, a young woman, whose ancestors lived on Standing Rock for hundreds of years. And she said, you know, I want people to know that the Army Corps of Engineers came here in the late 50s and flooded this area, and my people were running for their lives. So I think that there's this just this interesting thing happening with, you know, with Black Lives Matter and the, all the police shootings, and then all of these museums that are opening about slavery and lynching. I'm hoping that the same thing happens with Native Americans. I mean, this is a personal issue for me, Mark, and I don't really talk about this much, but I'm, I'm going I'm to start because I think it's important. Go ahead. My grandparents recently passed away, and both Native American. My grandfather was Paiute from Arizona. My grandma was Tomo from Northern California. And there's something happening right now with Standing Rock, but then this desire and this hunger for information about the, the history of Native Americans. You know, I think it's time for Native Americans to stand up and say, wait a minute, where is our Vietnam Memorial? You know, I live in California, and I have to see Unipero Serra highway signs when I drive. I mean, this is a man who came and started the missions, which slaughtered so many California Indians. I mean, we have to walk around and see Christopher Columbus statues. You know, we've got the Redskins. I mean, it's time, I think, for Native Americans to stand up and say enough is enough. I mean, people are saying we have been fighting for <laughs> so long for clean air and clean water. And we want our museums. We want books. We want, we want to be on in the media. We want to be heard. And I think that's what's happening right now. It's actually really exciting to see. I think there's major, major changes happening right now. I, I would agree. I, I, I can, you can feel it happening, and I can feel it happening when I talk to my friends across the country. Just the other night, on on people, my my family from the Wind River Reservation was saying the same thing. This is there is something a movement. Uh, they're now busy, kind of hunting to bring. I know you're a vegan, but hunting to bring <laughs> meat uh, to bring meat to the encampment, uh, which I think is interesting. They're going to take a, a foray of p p folks from the, the Shoshone Arapaho Reservation. To, they're already up there, but bring us out, bringing food uh, right. for the winter. Mark, do you want to leave, leave us with yeah, a closing thought? Uh, that's just one part of the story that's amazing is the role of social media and bringing Indian country together. If they put a post up, we need coats, a day later they're saying, please, no more coats. If they put <laughs> one up for food, suddenly yeah, food shows right. up in great um, organized numbers. It's really the outpouring of people from across the country and being able to connect through social media has just been extraordinary. Well, this and, and if you do want to help, the one thing that they really need right now is gift cards. They say, you know, it's great to send in pallets and stuff, but if you really want to help and you don't really live in the area, gift cards are really important. Also, gas cards. I mean, I know that, you know, we're talking about oil here, but the fact is we have to, in order to stop this, people need to be in caravans. And so what they're doing is they're asking people with cars to, to take part in these caravans to go to the different sites of where the oil pipeline is being constructed, and so there might be like a hundred-mile caravan, and that takes all day for people to go through. And so they need gas cards, they need gift cards to your basic chain store, uh, because they're feeding a lot of people at this camp, and obviously the need is, is still there, and you can find all of that information at the Sacred Stone Facebook page. There's a lot of information online. And we're going to put all this stuff on our website as well so people can see that. Um, 
And uh, I, want, I do want to thank you all for being here. This has been a really great conversation. You just heard Rosa Aguilar's voice. She's host of your call, uh, radio on KALW in San Francisco, writes for many journals, usually voice workshops, uh, has written some wonderful books and has just come back from, from, um, just come back from, from North Dakota, uh, and is also a member of the Native American Journalists Association. And Mark Trahant, uh, who is past president of that Native American Journalists Association, faculty member at the University of North Dakota, as the Charles Johnson Endowed Professor of Journalism, and you can follow him on TrahanReports.com. Uh, and I want to thank you both, Mark and, and Rose, for spending the time with us today. Anytime. Thank you, Rose. Look forward to keeping this up, and I'm looking forward to what you what you, what you both bring out here, and looking forward to this, this, this spirit you all bring to this struggle. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. Before we get to this break, I do have to remind you um, about the, the Mark Steiner Show. It's brought to you in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From school funding to testing, you can learn about the important issues affecting Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association's website at marylandeducators.org. That's marylandeducators.org. And we're going to take a short break, and then we meet with activists from Haiti and talk about what's happening there now. Stay with us.